I want to start out by telling you guys a story, and this is a story that is packed with action, adventure, treasure hunting, pirates, soldiers, sailors, the whole nine yards. Really. Except the sad part is we don't have time to go into all the exciting details. But the story does start out with a king. And the king was a really powerful, very wealthy, very influential king who even had islands named after him and was married to a queen of another kingdom. This was a powerful guy. And this guy noticed that his neighboring kingdom, uh, the king had just recently died in battle with no children. There was no heir to the throne. And so let me ask you, if you were a powerful king and you saw your neighboring kingdom with no heir to the throne, what would you do? Yeah, he so generously offered his services as their ruler and took their kingdom under his crown. But just when his global wealth and assets rapidly multiplied in that moment and things seemed to be going really well, there was another guy who did not like this king. And this other guy was a governor under the king of a territory in that kingdom somewhat far away. And the people in that territory were fed up with their king. They were fed up with the way that he was so selfish, so arrogant, so wealthy. And none of that was filtering down to their people and their villages and their territory. And so they led a revolt. And after years of war, countless lives lost, lots of battles and bloodshed, that territory became a new kingdom, a baby kingdom, a tiny little kingdom. And so they set out to protect their newfound liberty. And so what did they do to protect their liberty, to become not just a baby kingdom, but a powerful kingdom? They looked back at their former king and thought, well, how did he do it? Let's try to do what he's doing. And so they noticed that this king gained his power largely from the wealth that he accumulated. And he gained his wealth from sending out expeditions overseas to bring back exotic goods that he could sell for a profit. And so this little baby kingdom sent out four ships to set out to do that themselves. And they sent out these four ships in search of one exotic good. Now let me ask you, does anybody know what kingdom this is about? Bob it's not Bob Marley. <laughs> anybody else? Any other guesses? This is a true story. Anybody? The difficulty is that this story has been repeated so many times throughout history that we don't really know who it is because it's happened so much, right? Mandela. Not Mandela, but it, it turns out that that great king was King Philip of Spain and Portugal. And it turns out that that little baby kingdom was the Netherlands. And those four ships that they sent out were the beginning of the Dutch East India Company. Does anybody know about that company? That company, this is what Wikipedia says, it's the world's first formally listed public company, and it's most, the most profitable company in human history that we have recorded. This company, starting with those four ships who were sent out in search of pepper, believe it or not, that company is considered to be the forerunner of modern corporations, and it laid the foundations for the rise of giant global corporations in subsequent centuries as a highly significant and formidable socio-political economic force of the modern day world. 
which became the dominant factor in almost all economic systems today. That little company, starting with those four ships, became a massive global empire. And at the same time, just a couple hundred kilometers across the water, the little kingdom of England set out to do the same thing. And I cannot make this up. Their first maiden voyage in their company was aboard the Red Dragon. You guys know about that? The Red Dragon. And so that little company, alongside of the other little company, went out and literally took over the globe. That search for spices and pepper spread to textiles, silk, cotton, wine, all sorts of things. You mentioned Mandela. They, they imported wine from South Africa and sent colonies to South Africa. But all across the globe, these two little companies became massive empires through their global economy and trade. And believe it or not, um, as they began to expand westward, the Netherlands purchased an island for $24. That island became New Amsterdam, and that New Amsterdam was then taken over by the British and renamed New York. And so, here we are, fast forward to today, we have the top two global cities on almost every global city's index are New York City and London. Now, where in the world is this going? What is the point? Guys, this is not some conspiracy theory, and this is not an anti-America or anti-capitalist or anything along those lines. The point that I'm trying to get at, um, to piggyback off of what Dan has said to us, it, we cannot interpret the book of Revelation through our tabloids. We have to interpret scripture from scripture. But once we have understood the meaning of the scripture, we must then interpret our history books from scripture as well, right? We don't impose newspapers and history on the Bible, but we do interpret history from the Bible. And so the fact is that this growth of these, these little kingdoms into these massive empires, these massive economies with all sorts of corruption and abuse and the slave trade was introduced by these companies and there's just all sorts of corruption that came into play as a result of those companies who set out to seek a name for themselves. Today's text in Revelation 17 and 18 is a call for wisdom for you. Today's text is a description of this repeating cycle that has happened throughout history, century after century. We just went over 500 years of history in five minutes, but it can all be summed up from what's happening in today's text in Revelation. And the fact is that as much as bloodlines and territories matter to people, they matter more to God. God can look at these events of history, which are all tied together, believe it or not. We are not separated from our history. They're all interconnected. And God, who stands outside of time eternally, can look in, and he has remembered every injustice that has happened. He has remembered every abuse and every evil thing that has taken place as humans have sought to make a name for themselves. And that's our point for today, guys, as we dive into the text, is that God has not forgotten these things, and he will bring justice to bear for those who have committed injustice. And so how are we to respond 
as normal, everyday people who are living in the midst of this world system that has been built up into this global economy, this socioeconomic force, how are we supposed to live our lives? What are we supposed to do? So let's turn to Revelation 17, and we're going to dive in. This is a lot of text to cover today. Just like we covered a lot last week, we're going to cover a lot today. And so I want to read through it kind of in sections as we go. So let's start out by reading Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. John writes, And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Let's take a moment to pray that this call for wisdom this morning um, would ring true. Lord, I pray right now that you would bring us divine wisdom to understand the words of this text. I pray that you would open up our ears and our hearts and our minds to understand these things so that we might walk out what you have called us to walk out effectively, that we would not be drunk on the wine of this great woman that has intoxicated so many throughout history. Lord, I pray for the purity of this church, and I pray for effectiveness of witness in our local church. So, Lord, we need your wisdom this morning. Please open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. This vision begins with the counterfeit queen. And so we have to look at this vision, and we have to ask ourselves, who is this woman? Right away, we can notice from the first two verses that this woman influences every kingdom and every class on the earth. Did you see that? The kings of earth have been drunk on her immorality, but also the dwellers on earth have become drunk as well. This woman carries massive influence. And this woman stands in contrast. How many of you remember chapter 12? Who was presented to us in chapter 12? Anybody remember? There's a beast, but who is the beast standing over in chapter 12? A woman. Chapter 12 presents this bride queen that's reigning over the sun and the moon and the stars, and the beast is standing over her trying to devour her. Yet here in chapter 17, we're presented with a contrast to that woman. We're presented with this woman who is adorned in symbols of prosperity. She has gold, she has pearls, she has purple and scarlet. She is dressed like royalty, and she's attractive. But this woman is a counterfeit queen. 
For what does she hold in her hand? Anybody? What is the woman holding in her hand? A cup, yes. And in that cup, that fine, beautiful, royal, majestic goblet is the intoxicating drink of abominations and impurities. And this woman is seated on the beast. He's not seeking to devour her, but she is actually seated. That's the word for sitting in authority. Just like Christ is seated in the heavenlies, she is seated on this beast. They have a close relationship. And so she holds out this cup full of abominations and impurities. Now I want to point out to you guys right away that this clues us in that the identity of this woman is characterized by a search for material prosperity and idolatrous practices that result in a variety of immoral behaviors. If you look at the words abomination and impurities throughout scripture, it takes you back to Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 7. And in those chapters, the Lord is outlining for his people proper sexual ethics and proper worship procedures. And in both of those cases, he has forbidden the worship of idols and sexual immorality. And so right away, we can see that this counterfeit queen, though she is attractive, though she is intoxicating, is an evil queen. And she's characterized by idol worship and immorality. But she's bearing this name. Remember, there was the, the mention earlier in the text of um, those who have the seal of the beast or those who have the seal of Christ. Well, this woman is bearing her own seal. She's bearing the name on her forehead of Babylon the Great. Which leads us to another question. Who is Babylon? I think most of you guys know the biblical context of Babylon is that they were the nation who took the, the, uh, the people of Judah captive, right? They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They stole all of the holy items out of the temple and took the people away as captives. You guys knew that, right? Yes? Bible knowledge quiz? All right. That's the Bible um, identity of Babylon, right? And it's to the original readers, Babylon would have carried something of the same reputation as Adolf Hitler. This, this would have been the severity of calling someone Babylon. But throughout history, since this book was written, there's been a constant quest to try to figure out, is this Babylon? Is this Babylon? Early on in the church, uh, even the Apostle Peter referred to Rome as Babylon in 1 Peter 5. But then as history progresses, the reformers began to look at the Catholic Church and call it Babylon, right? And then as we progressed into the 1990s, people began to look at Saddam Hussein and say, he is ruling over the same territory and he is seeking to make himself this global empire. He must be Babylon. Well, the fact is, the identity of Babylon goes back much further. And while I do believe there are, um, they are identified with Babylon, certainly, the story goes back further. If you remember in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel is a big cross-reference from the book of Revelation, right? Daniel chapter 4, we have King Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he set out to do? He builds himself a golden image. And he built that golden image so that everybody might come and worship it. And that golden image was built in a plain called Dura, 
in the land of Shinar. Does anybody recognize the name Shinar? Another Bible knowledge quiz. Well, this takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. There's a table of nations, and there is a description of all the peoples who came from Noah. And those peoples began establishing um, cities and territories, right? Well, there was one guy in particular who was named Nimrod, and he set out in the plain of Shinar to build a city. And they became so great, and they set out, the Bible says, to make a name for themselves by building this great city and this great tower. Does anybody remember what the tower was called? The Tower of Babel. This is the original biblical uh, source for the name Babylon. And in that city, in that account, the people were seeking to make a name for themselves while they disobeyed their orders from the Lord, who had said to them, go out throughout the whole earth, have dominion over it, be fruitful and multiply the whole earth. And they said, let's stay here. Let's make a name for ourselves here as we build this tower. Guys, that is the biblical identity of Babylon. And it's the epitome of idolatrous pride that seeks to make a name for itself. And as we talked about last week in Romans 1, the Bible tells us that when your heart sets out to make a name for itself, to glorify yourself, that is when all the idolatrous practices and all the immoral behaviors begin to set in. It's a result of a heart that is not worshiping God as the rightful ruler, but a heart that worships self. That's the heart of Babylon right there. But let's continue. After we see this woman, this counterfeit queen, who is characterized by the self-glorification, we see again the blasphemous beast. Let's look at verse 7. As John marvels at this vision, the angel says, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and it is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. The beast that we see is the same beast that's been at work from chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13. Do you guys see the parallels? Do you remember the wording from those chapters? 
This is the same blasphemous beast who rejects the rule of God and seeks his own name. And this beast, his sole mission is to make war against the people of God. You remember chapter 12? After he failed to destroy the chosen one, he set out to make war upon his offspring, right? His sole mission is to destroy the people of God. And this beast, as the text says, is kings. The beast is made up of these demonically inspired, spiritually blind kings who rule and control humanity. So I, I know there's a lot of systems that would look at the beast and say that it is a particular individual in the future that has not yet been born. But I think we have to look at the text and see the description from the angel who says that the beast is kings who have fallen, some are, and some are yet to come. This beast rears his head throughout history. He rises, and then he falls, and then he rises again, and then he falls. And so there's this confusing language of he was and is not and is to come, and it's expressed in four different ways, and it, it's like when you read it, he's the seventh, but he's the eighth, but he's the fifth. What, what is happening here? Well, quite simply, guys, he's a counterfeit messiah. He is a false Christ. Because what does the text say about Jesus? He is the one who what? He's the one who is, who was, sorry, I said it wrong. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Right now in this text, the angel is identifying this beast as a false, as a counterfeit. He is the one who was and is not. Even though he still exists in some way, he is not. He is dead, though he still tries to rear his head. And he is going to come to destruction. You see that? The beast, as much as he will try to convince everybody that he is the Messiah, is going to destruction. So this counterfeit Messiah has been already defeated. He's been defeated by Christ when he died and rose again, but he has been not yet destroyed. The text says that he is about to rise to go to destruction. So we could say that this beast is transtemporal. That means that he spans across time throughout history. He's also transnational. He's multiple kings. Some have risen and fallen. One is reigning right now and will fall, and more will come. He's transtemporal. He's transnational but he's a false Messiah, and he will, the text says, um, let's see, where are we at? Verses 12 through 14. This is what the text says about the beast. Those ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received power, but they will receive authority together with the beast for one hour. And these kings are of one mind, and they're going to hand over their power and authority to this beast, this demonically inspired self-seeking false messiah complex and they will make war on the lamb do you see that they're going to mount together as much power and control as they can in their final hour to try to destroy the church so throughout history we see this constant beastly quest to destroy god's people and if you look through the history books in every empire we see accounts of kings and rulers killing God's people again and again and again. Every time a king gains this wealth and power and control, 
and somebody in the name of God challenges him, we then see persecution spring up. Even that account I told you at the beginning, the examples of Spain and Portugal and England, uh, where all of our history lies, much persecution has occurred. Many saints have been killed in the name of those kingdoms for the sake of their own glorification. It's a beastly quest to destroy God's people. But what we see here is the judgment of this woman. We're not even talking about the judgment of the beast yet. We're talking about the judgment of the woman in this chapter. And what we see is a catastrophic collapse. I want to point out the relationship between the woman and the beast. I think the best way to describe it is something of a symbiotic um, symbiotic relationship of manipulation and exploitation. You guys know those nature shows with the big buffaloes and the little bird who feeds off the bugs on the back of the buffalo? That's what's happening in this text. This counterfeit queen, this um, immoral woman, is riding on the back of the beast, right? She is gaining something from him, and he is gaining something from her. And together, they're manipulating one another. They're exploiting one another to get what they want. Look at verse 15. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Again, we see the woman has influence over every tribe and tongue and nation. Does that language sound familiar? She has influence around the world. And look down at verse 18. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So in some way, shape, and form, this woman, though she is riding on the back of the beast, has dominion over him because he's been intoxicated by her. I want you to turn over to chapter 18, though. I want to point out some more about this woman's character and identity. Yes, she's idolatrous. Yes, she's immoral. Yes, she has world influence. But look at verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. And I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, She's a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and for every unclean and detestable beast. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings of earth have committed immorality, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Skip down to verse 7. She glorified herself and lived in luxury saying in her heart, I sit as a queen. I will never see mourning. Skip down to verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one, once she falls, can buy their cargo anymore. And here's what these merchants sell. Just listen to this. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, scented wood, articles of ivory, articles of wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. 
that is, human souls. If that's not bad enough, skip down to verse 24. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. That's who this woman is. This woman who has seduced the kings and the merchants and the peoples of the world to pursue economic prosperity, to pursue status, to pursue a name for themselves by possessing natural resources that were given by God for the good of all humanity and then selling them for a massive profit and self-gain while enslaving others, while exploiting others, while killing others, all for the name of ourselves. When you read these lists of things that she is known for and you look in our history books of all these explorers and expeditions and kings who have made the world what it is today, we cannot help but look and see that they've all been drunk by this counterfeit queen. They've all committed immorality with her. This is the society that we live in today is built upon this woman. And so turning back to chapter 17, we see the woman riding on the beast. The beast has gained further and further control as he amasses economic, socio, power, influence, prosperity, and wealth. Do you see that? From her, he's gaining wealth. She's gaining influence. Together, they're manipulating each other for what they want. But the beast, the whole time, is never concerned with her, with her um, success. The beast is never concerned with being a faithful lover who is committed to her for life, right? The words used in the text are an immoral prostitute. And those words are used because they mean something to us, because they carry a very graphic, vivid picture of who this woman is and her relationship with the beast. The beast has used her to gain global control. But once he gets what he wants, once the beast is positioned to mount this final attack on the church, he will no longer need her. All the goods that she traded, all the things that she can promise him that make them uh, look wealthy will no longer matter once he gains the control to mount the attack on the church. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 17. The ten horns that you saw, those kings, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. And then they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Once the beast gets what he wants, he will get rid of her. And when the beast gets rid of her, everything will collapse. I don't say this to be fear-mongering and, and to stir up questions of, wow, what is this going to look like? The reality is, when the world has been built upon this woman and God finally brings judgment for all of her injustices, she will collapse. And the world as we know it will change drastically. And in that moment, the beast will be prepared 
for what's described in chapter 11 as the killing of the church. I'm not trying to, to exaggerate this, guys. This is what the text says. The beast has used this woman all along, and he will destroy her. Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, he, he healed a man, and the religious leaders came and said, this man is, is working for Satan. He comes from Satan. And Jesus said, the house divided against itself cannot stand. But then he says, if Satan is divided against himself, that proves that he is coming to an end. And I would bet that Jesus in that moment knew all of this, all of these images that we're seeing in the Bible, right? I would, I would bet that Jesus knew about all of this in detail. And he's saying that when Satan has finally turned in on himself, he can no longer stand because he is counterfeit, he is false, and he is coming to an end. The fact is that the system that the world has established in seeking its own glory and seeking its own name and suppressing the truth of God, that system will crumble. And in that crumbling, God's judgment is brought to bear for everything that she has committed, all the injustices, all the immoralities. Flip back to chapter 18 and look at verse 9. When that woman collapses, the kings of earth, though they hate her, Though they've used her, those kings will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning, and they will stand far off in fear of her torment, and they will say, Alas, you great city, you mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Down in verse 15, the merchants, all of those who have become wealthy because of her, they will stand off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and gold and jewels, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Even the shipmasters and the sailors, those who sail out to sea, those men are going to stand far off and cry out as they see her burning and say, what city was like this great city? They're going to throw dust on their heads as they weep and mourn, crying out, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, in a single hour she has been laid waste. Guys, history matters to God. And all of the evils that have taken place that we are now wrestling with in our society, all the questions and the debates and the divide politically that have come as a result of this, God has not forgotten those things. God will bring justice to bear, and it will be painful for all those who are not relying on God, but are relying on the beast and the woman for their prosperity. They will weep, and they will mourn, and her collapse will be catastrophic. And so how do we respond to this? Because I'm pretty sure that none of us in here are kings seeking world dominion, right? Let me know if you are. We'll have to have a sidebar conversation. Most of us in here are average, everyday people. We go to work. We work hard to pay for the bills that we need to pay, right? But as I already said, this woman 
does not just intoxicate the kings, the elite. This woman has filtered down her seduction through all the layers of society. It's not hard, and I don't have to make a compelling case because it's so there in front of us that everything in our society screams that it belongs to this woman, right? Our world so loudly declares its allegiance to the great Babylon. Just think about the corporations and the politicians that rule this nation, the media companies that rule our lives, the social media platforms that have all of your information, that know everything about you, that are putting before you picture after picture of what your life should look like. They're putting before you the intoxicating drink of this woman and saying, go out and make a name for yourself. It's okay if you're not a king. Go make a name for yourself. Get that promotion and make a name for yourself so you can make a little more money, so you can get that nicer car, so people know that you've made a name for yourself. Bust your back so that your kids can go to college so they can be better off than you were, so they can have a name for your family, right? So they can prosper. Guys, you don't have to be a king to drink this intoxicating drink. It's everywhere. And as we scroll through Instagram, we look at these people who travel the world, who are influencers, who are making money by presenting products before you. It's all Babylon. It is all Babylon. So how do we respond? How do we live our lives in the midst of this system that is coming to its end? Number one, I want to challenge you to evaluate your allegiance. The text says that this calls for wisdom, right? If the Bible says you need wisdom to understand this, you need wisdom to understand it. And that wisdom has to come from God. The Bible says that if we lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom and he will give it. We need to evaluate our allegiance because even the church can be intoxicated by Babylon. And in fact, the church has been and still is intoxicated by this. I can't help but look around mainstream Christianity, especially in our nation, and see this Babylonian thing happening. People who are leading the church are seeking a name for themselves. And I'm not going to sit up here and name names because I don't know them in person. But when you look at them, when you look what they're saying and what they're doing and their lifestyle, this is happening in the church. And if it can happen to a leader of the church, it can certainly happen to you. All of us can be intoxicated. Even, let me just confess this, even when Dan and I go to a meeting with other pastors in our small denomination and somebody gives you some type of honor, it's easy in that moment to think, oh, I've got something of a name for myself now. People know me, even for us. It's just these tiny little weeds creeping up where we sense the temptation to make a name for ourselves. We have to evaluate our allegiance. And guys, this takes coming before the Lord. This takes work, right? We actually have to set aside time to come before the Lord in silence and waiting and listening and praying, asking the Lord to reveal these areas of temptation in our hearts where our allegiance lies with Babylon and not with Jesus. We have to ask him to point these things out. 
we have to have his wisdom to understand what our hearts are given to. And so once you evaluate that allegiance, and maybe God will bring something to mind, oh, I've been chasing this, and I need to cut that off. You then need to reorient your treasure. The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart is also, right? The things that are most important to you is where your treasure will lie. And treasure goes beyond money. Do you guys believe that? It does include money, but our treasure also includes our time. Our treasure includes the energy that we spend to do things. Our treasure must be reoriented towards the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Babylon and the beast. So once we recognize these areas where repentance needs to happen, we must then proactively reorient our treasure that we are seeking the kingdom of God alone. Our dollars, our minutes, and our calories, they must be seeking the kingdom of God first. But then number three, honor your government. You might say, wait a second. If the government is intoxicated by Babylon, promoting evil anti-Christ ideas, how can we honor that? The fact is, the Bible tells us specifically to honor the emperor. Jesus himself said that give, we must give the things to Caesar that are his. Think about that. Coming from Jesus, who created everything, he actually owned the territory that Rome was controlling. He actually owned the gold that was made into coins that Rome stamped their identity on. Yet he said, we need to give the things to Caesar that belong to him because for a time he has granted authority to the beast and the kings and the woman that his purposes might be fulfilled. So we must honor the government. There's a difference between honoring and endorsing. You're right. Yeah, that's a good point. And so how do we do that? Very practically speaking, pray for them instead of posting about them. Pray for the government instead of posting about them. Quite frankly, the government will continue to do things that we disagree with even more and more, right? If the, if, if the course of history is going towards a final end where the beast is gaining more and more control, then we must assume that the government is going to get farther and farther away from what we agree with as Christians, right? So we just have to accept that as a fact. And then we must honor them by praying for them, by not complaining about them, by seeking ways that we can encourage what they're doing that's right, the way we speak about them. Let's, let's glory in the good things that they've done rather than complaining in the ways that they have gone wrong and take those things to the Lord in prayer. There's a difference between honoring somebody and just um, following them in a disgruntled fashion, right? And so I'm not saying that we must obey the government when they are telling us to sin, right? Scripture's clear on that. We obey God rather than men, but as long as the government is telling us to do things that are not in direct disobedience to God, we honor them. 
And then fourth, remember your purpose. As we continue to walk through this system of intoxicating immorality and idolatry all around us, materialism, consumerism, all of it, it's a mess. You guys feel like, when I think about it, it just feels like a giant mess that is trying to trap us. You have to remember your purpose. We have to look back at Revelation 11, which talks about the beast rising up to destroy the church. And what is the church doing in those moments? Does anybody remember from Revelation 11? What is the church doing? Anybody? The church is bearing witness to Jesus. They are promoting his name even in the face of persecution and death. The church is the witnesses in the outer court that is called to make known his name, not a name for ourselves, his name. And so when it comes to things like our job and our income and our financial security, how often does our heart give allegiance to that rather than God? Think about this. You work for a corporation that is not committed to Christ. And rather than being a witness in that outer court and declaring the name of Jesus to your coworkers, to your bosses, to everybody, rather than bearing witness to Christ, you stay silent to protect your financial security and economic prosperity. These are areas where we need to sit before the Lord and we need his wisdom, we need his boldness, we need the empowerment of his spirit to fill us in those moments because we are here to bear witness not to give allegiance to our money and our job and our career, not to make a name for ourselves. We have to remember our purpose. And the reality is that when the church begins to rise up as witnesses, things are going to start to change. There's not a whole lot of um, overt persecution happening in our country right now, largely because the church is silent in many ways. But as we begin to live out our calling as witnesses in the middle of this terrible system that is falling, the persecution will rise, and it's not going to be easy. But that is what Christ has called us into. And even as we were singing, Dan was saying something, and I, and I began to think about the potential for real pain and heartache that comes when you step into those moments of persecution, even thinking about Brian, thinking about the reality that he could be arrested. He could be thrown in jail for his witness for Jesus. And that is a painful experience. But that is what Christ has called us to, right? We suffer for his sake with joy, counting, counting it an honor that we would suffer for his sake, the one who has suffered to save us. We are the chosen conquerors if we are faithful to Christ. That's what the text says in chapter 17, verse 14. Though this beast will make war, the lamb will conquer them because he is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings and those with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Let's pray, guys.
Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you for giving us this warning in your word. Even though it's stark and graphic and gruesome to think about all of the things that could take place, all of the frustrating things that will happen, even as we feel like we're banging our heads against the wall as our nation's leaders continue to make decisions again and again that bring division, that seemingly make things worse for many, many people. Lord, you have called us to walk through these moments as your faithful witnesses. You've called us to have hearts that are sold out to you, hearts that are fixed upon your kingdom and your reign, and hearts that adore you that do not seek a name for ourselves. Lord, we need your help with this, and we need your wisdom, because there are so many ways we can drink this intoxicating drink and become drunk to it and blind to it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring sobriety, that you would bring spiritual soundness of mind and heart, that we would see through these things, that we would have discernment, even when it comes to our jobs and our income and these important things to us, health care, family. Lord, these things are important, yet we must be devoted to your kingdom first, not our own prosperity, not our own wealth, not our own name, because you've said that those who are faithful to you will receive a new name in heaven. We don't need to make a name for ourselves here because you have given us identity in you and you will give us a new name. And so, Lord, I just want to pray for my brothers and my sisters in here. There's specifics in each individual's life where we need to come before you, we need to evaluate our hearts. And Lord, it's only by your spirit that we are even able to identify these areas of weakness and failure. And so Lord, please shine a light on those things. Please point out these areas where we need to, to put to death the things of the world. Lord, even when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to seeking financial security, Lord, I pray that you would reveal areas that we need to let go of. And I pray that you would stir up in us a vigor and an excitement and a zeal to be your witnesses, even when it might cost us a lot. Lord, fill us with boldness. If Paul needed to pray for boldness, how much more do we need to pray for boldness to speak the name of Jesus? Lord, Lord we want to see your kingdom advancing in the darkness. And we're going to need your help, we're going to need your empowerment, and we're going to need your spirit along the way, which you have promised to give again and again. So Lord, fill up my brothers and sisters. Help us to, help us to have allegiance to our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
things that makes that bitter and sweet is when different folks move on. Um, and so Paces, this is one of their last Sundays. They may show up, visit here and there, uh, but God is transitioning them uh, outside of the city. And so um, we want to just participate in the Lord's table this morning, being reminded reminded of the blessing of community. It's a blessing. And that's even the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul will say the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. There's a deep, deep blessing that we have because we get to do life with one another. We get to share in one, other, one another's triumphs and we get to journey with one another through life's deepest and most that's a blessing. Because now together we can say, isn't, isn't Jesus faithful? Hasn't he been faithful? And won't he continue to be faithful through the next journey that might lay ahead of us? Um, so what I'm gonna what I'm gonna ask us to do is uh, come forward, grab the elements, um, and because I have a guitar around me, I'm gonna pray for you guys just at a distance and we'll We'll, we'll, we'll take the elements uh, together, being reminded of the benefits, the sweet blessing that we have of being community uh, together, but also then praying for God's blessing upon you guys as you transition and find uh, another church community up in that, that area. So let's go ahead and stand. Come on forward. Grab the elements.
you so much for the blessing of community. And we thank you for uh, the work that you've done so that the blessing of community can be all the sweet, uh, so sweet. God, thank you that man, all of us here, we would never have chosen <laughs> to, to do life with one another or to be in Philadelphia with one another. But you have been so good and sovereign, not only in salvation, but then also sovereign to bring us together that we might share in community and the blessings uh, of, of community together. And so, God, we, we thank you. We honor you uh, for those sweet blessings. God, we thank you for the paces, uh, for, for Micah and Josiah as well, Lord. Uh, we, we pray your mighty blessing upon their life. As we've uh, even prayed this past week, Lord, grants uh, something of a sense of clear calling and direction in terms of what it looks like to connect with the church family in that area. God, I pray that it would be smooth, and I pray that it would be something that is, is felt like this is right. This is where God is leading. This is uh, we, where we are to share the blessing of community with others. Lord, I, I, I pray uh, as well as this transition happens, Lord, guard, guard their hearts from any sense of loneliness. God, be ever so near as you've been faithful to be throughout these last so many years. Uh, let it be that uh, in moments of discouragement,
this message, uh, even this week, there's a lot of confusion in our world today. Everybody wants to take sides. Everybody thinks they've got the right side. <laughs> and, you know, the King of Glory stands over us saying, whose side are you on? Whose? The red, the blue? No, 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 no. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the answer. I'm the one you follow. Right? We honor the governments. We, we promote justice. We help the needy. But we follow Jesus. We follow him. We are not defined by our politics first, our positions. We are defined first and foremost by the Lamb of God. Right? We're on his side. So don't get confused with the millennium of just positions and stuff in the world. No. Let's get our eyes on Jesus. Let's faithfully follow him. So God, we ask for wisdom just as was preached to us. Grant us your spirit of wisdom, where we seek to both honor the government, to pursue justice, but also, Lord, most of all, to see our identity and our, our purpose firmly founded upon you. Lead us, Lord, lead us. Even as Isaiah 60, again, says, arise and shine. We arise and shine, not not for the sake of political perspective, not for positions, but we shine for you. You are the one. And so, Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom and shine mightily through us so that the name of Jesus might be known. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's good to be together this morning. You are dismissed.